Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. I definitely thought that, like, without a doubt, I'm like, I know that I didn't kill anybody. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hurt anybody. So I'm, I'm like, oh yeah, I know I'm going, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go home. But it didn't happen like that. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. When you're 16 or 17 years old, do you really think about what you're doing? And do you think about who you're doing it with? Sure, sometimes, but not all the time. And there's science to show that even in those times, teens don't think like adults. Their brains aren't fully developed. And that means two things. First, that they didn't have the ability to think about the consequences of their actions. And second, that in time, when their brain does become fully developed, they can become rehabilitated. So for many reasons, the U.S. Supreme Court has issued a series of decisions that if a teenager is convicted of a crime, they can't be sentenced to death, and they can't be automatically given a life sentence without the possibility of ever being paroled or freed from prison. And what does that mean? How long can a state send a teen to prison before they even have a chance at freedom? 15 years? 25 years? If you break the law and are sent to prison as a teen, how long do you have to wait before you're given another chance? This week on Life of the Law, reporter Brenda Salinas is going to tell us about Ashley Irvin. Back in 2006, Ashley was a shy honor student from a black middle-class neighborhood in Houston. She was handpicked to attend a special high school that focused on science. Her teachers loved her. She wanted to go into medicine. And right now, I think that if everything would have happened as planned, I would have been a nurse right now. Sophomore year, Ashley started dating a boy from her school named Keithron. She liked that he was soft-spoken, like her. She was a teenager, in love. This was, that was my first boyfriend. And I knew that it was possible that it could have been plenty others after that. But at 17, that was like, that was all I seen. So I kind of just put my all into that, and it was just like that was just it for me. Keithron had a friend, Dexter. Ashley sort of knew that guy was bad news. They'd grown up in the same apartment complex, and he was always in and out of trouble as a kid. Ashley has always been really close to her mom, so maybe it says something that she didn't tell her mom when she was hanging out with Dexter. Most of the time, the three of them did typical high school stuff. They'd watch movies, listen to music, just hang out. They also had some riskier habits. One night, the three of them were out driving around Houston in Ashley's car. It was late May, Memorial Day weekend 2006. Dexter was driving. Ashley was dozing in the back seat. It was well after midnight. And I wake up to a car door slamming. She could tell that her boyfriend, Keithron, had just gotten back in the car. He was wearing a hoodie with the hood up. He told Dexter that the woman didn't have any money. They drove off. I could tell that something was going on that wasn't right. A little later, Dexter noticed that Ashley was awake. He asked her to drive. They swapped places. Ashley started driving towards Keithron's house. It was nearly dawn. I'm at a stoplight, 
and I guess he, I don't know, he sees something or something, and he tells me, you know, turn here and let us out here. So I do it, and in that instant, that's when it all happened. At a car wash near the intersection, an older man was busy washing a truck. Dexter and Keithron hopped out. They had guns in their hands. He tried to rob this man, and I guess during the course of it, something went wrong, and the man was shot, and he was killed. The man was retired shop teacher Brady Davis. He had woken up at the crack of dawn to go to his local car wash. He was catering a barbecue later, and he wanted to clean his pit and trailer. Dexter and Keithron approached him wearing black bandanas over their faces. They demanded that Brady hand over his wallet. Brady had taught young men who looked just like them. Maybe he thought if he could only talk to them. He was found lying behind his truck with a single gunshot wound. He was 61. Meanwhile, Ashley had driven around the corner to go to her house, so she says she didn't actually see Dexter fire the gun. I heard, I heard a gun shot, but I didn't know exactly, you know, where it came from or what was going on or anything. I didn't know what was going on. Ashley says she told herself, I hear gunshots in this neighborhood all the time. And um, as I'm going back up the street, they're running to my car. So I stop, of course, and they get in and they don't say anything to me. And I just drive them back home. Ashley says when she drove away, she didn't know what was happening. Police and prosecutors say she knew exactly what was going on. About a month later, at the end of June, two plainclothes police officers showed up at a local McDonald's where Ashley worked part-time as a cashier. They'd been looking for Ashley's boyfriend, Keithron. He was a suspect in another crime, a rape and double murder committed in mid-June, a few weeks after the Brady Davis murder. The police had found out that Ashley and Keithron were dating, so when they couldn't find Keithron, they stopped by Ashley's work to see if she could help them. The officers asked if she would come with them. She agreed. In my family, I, I was always told, like, if you have to answer questions, I mean, just tell the truth, and nothing will happen. I mean, that's how I, my family was, but looking back now, a lot of people in my neighborhood, they probably would have never freely went with the police like I did. At first, the officers didn't think she had anything to do with either crime. But then she mentioned her car, a black Nissan Sentra identical to the one at the second crime scene. They asked if they could search it. She said yes, and the police had her car towed to the station. Then the officer said they needed to take her to the station for questioning. Actually, that whole time, I didn't think that I was in trouble at all. And actually, they kept telling me that, you know, I wasn't in trouble. So they made me feel like I wasn't. When she got to the station, the officer said she wasn't in custody. They said she was free to leave anytime she wanted. They gave her food. They let her use the bathroom. Then they asked her about the rape and double murder case, the case in which her boyfriend, Keithron, was a suspect. What she said must have been a surprise because Ashley, it turned out, 
was a witness to those crimes too. According to the police report, here's what Ashley said happened. It was late one night in mid-June 2006. 23-year-old Maria Aparece was sitting in her parked car with her 17-year-old boyfriend, who no. They were talking when Dexter Keithron and another man approached them with a shotgun and a pistol and forced the couple into the back seat. Then they drove around Houston demanding the couple give them money, credit cards, and PIN numbers. Ashley's cousin followed them in Ashley's car, with Ashley as the passenger. Both cars drove to a wooded area. There, Dexter raped Maria while Keithron held her boyfriend back. Then Dexter made the couple march 60 feet into the woods, naked. He shot them in the head, execution style. Ashley heard the gunshots. Afterwards, she and the three attackers went back to her boyfriend Keithron's apartment. At the police station, Ashley put this all in writing. Then, the police officer asked her about the Brady Davis murder, the one that happened in late May at the car wash, before the Aparece no murders. The officer suspected that Keithron and Dexter might also be involved in that crime, and that Ashley might know something about it too. So Ashley made a second written statement. She told the police everything that she saw and heard, and contrary to what she told me, that she was dozing in the car, that she didn't really know what was going on, she told the police she knew Keithron and Dexter were robbing people. She knew they had guns and that Dexter had fired his. She also told police she knew all of this when she drove Keithron and Dexter home after the murder at the car wash. After the first day of voluntarily talking to the police, Ashley went home. The next day, police went to her house and said they had more questions for her. She agreed to go with them. They gave her a ride to the station. When she got there, the officers read her her Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent. You can ask for an attorney. Anything you say may be used against you in a court of law. She agreed to answer their questions without an attorney. They asked her to give the same statement she'd given the day before. This time, they recorded her. She incriminated herself again. She said she was the getaway driver after the murder at the car wash. And this time, her statements could be used against her in court. It's important to say here that Ashley's aunt, Autumn Hawkins, says the statement Ashley made to police wasn't the truth. No, it's not correct. They, they, you know, you, sometimes you can tell them one thing and then they come up with something totally different from what you said. And I think after her being there for so long, she was just ready to go home, you know. That night, police questioned Ashley for five hours before they let her go home. Her aunt Autumn suspects the police fed Ashley information about the murders, information that she previously didn't have. Autumn thinks Ashley added that new information into her statements because she was tired and wanted to go home. You know, as her being 17, first time talking to police officers, they kind of coerced her, you know, into what to say. You know, if you say this, we'll let you go home. The police didn't charge Ashley in the Aparece No murders. Though she was at the scene of the crime, there was no evidence that she'd helped commit the crime. But the Brady Davis case was different. There, Ashley herself said that she'd driven the getaway car. So the police charged her with capital murder. That's when they told me, well, you're, um, I don't remember the exact words, but uh, that's when they told me that I was being arrested too. 
They took her to the county jail. That's where she sat for almost two years, waiting for a trial. In Texas, there's something called the law of parties. The law says if you knowingly played a significant role in a crime, if you added to the momentum of it in any way, you can be charged for that crime. So if you witness a murder, you're not necessarily on the hook. But if you're the getaway driver in a murder, like Ashley was, you can be charged as if you had pulled the trigger. So things didn't look good for Ashley. If she was found guilty of capital murder, she'd get a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. But right before the trial, the prosecution came to Ashley with a deal. Plead guilty to a lesser offense, testify against Dexter, and you'll get 35 years. Prosecutor Lisa Andrews says she still doesn't understand why Ashley didn't take the plea. I mean, the evidence against her was overwhelming and the law was clear about uh, what what her punishment could be. Um, and then she was offered an opportunity um, that she didn't take. Even Ashley's lawyer encouraged her to take the plea and she was going to do it. And right at the last minute when I, when I was taken into court, to um, plead guilty to this lesser offense, uh, I, I turned around and I looked and my family was there. And I see my mom and she just looked at me and she just shook her head like, like, no, what are you doing? You didn't do this, so you can't. So I didn't, I didn't sign for it. Ashley's Aunt Autumn says she's glad her niece didn't take the plea. Because we felt, her mom felt like her taking the 30 years is actually agreeing and saying that I'm guilty of doing this. And later on down the line, she couldn't appeal that 30 years because she said she was guilty. And she really didn't want to do it, but she thought of it as 30 years. At least I may have a chance of coming home. But her mom was telling her, you know, no, she didn't want her to accept that and plead guilty to something that she didn't do. In February 2008, after close to two years behind bars, Ashley finally went to trial. Despite the odds, she felt confident. Yeah, I definitely thought that, like, without a doubt, I'm like, I know that I didn't kill anybody. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hurt anybody. So I'm, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know I'm going, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go home. But it didn't happen like that. The jury made their decision pretty quickly. It wasn't even that long that they deliberated. Maybe a couple of hours, and I was called back into the courtroom. Uh, my family was there, and um, that's when they read the verdict. Guilty of capital murder. Even though she was 17 at the time of the murder, she was tried as an adult. The verdict came with an automatic sentence, life in prison without the possibility of parole. Ashley was in shock. I, I just can't believe any of it. Like, even though it's been 10 years, it still, like, it still amazes me every day. Like, every morning when I wake up, I can't believe that I'm in prison and for life without parole, that's what they gave me, it's, I can't grasp that.
Ashley was sent to state prison at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice Hilltop Unit. It's a minimum security prison for women in Gatesville, Texas, near Fort Hood. Every day since 2008, Ashley says she wakes up in her cement cubicle at 3.30 a.m. She works at the garment factory where she sews Texas flags and prison uniforms. When she's not working, she calls her family, writes letters, and studies for the college courses she's taking. In 2010, she appealed her sentence, but the appeal was rejected. It looked like Ashley would spend the rest of her life in prison. But in the last decade, the U.S. Supreme Court has made a series of major decisions that could change things for Ashley. Punishments that were once considered okay for juveniles were one by one ruled unconstitutional. Hadar Avram teaches law at UC Hastings. The first one in the in the in the cycle, I think, or in the the, the first decision in this uh, stream of decisions is Roper versus Simmons. It's a decision from 2005, in which the Supreme Court says uh, you can't sentence juveniles to death. That's unconstitutional. They're not as culpable as adults. So that's the first rung in the ladder. Then we have Graham versus Florida, which is the decision in which the Supreme Court says you can't sentence kids to life without parole for crimes that are not homicide. Then you have Miller versus Alabama, a decision from 2012 in which the Supreme Court says you can't use a mandatory sentencing scheme that requires giving somebody life without parole on juveniles. You have to have discretion. In other words, the Supreme Court's decision in the Miller case said that the sentence Ashley had received, automatic life without parole, was unconstitutional. But Miller only affected future sentences. The ruling didn't apply to inmates who had already been sentenced to life without parole for crimes they committed as teenagers. Inmates like Ashley and more than 2,000 others nationwide, would they have to spend the rest of their lives in prison? This past January, the Supreme Court began to answer that question. And then you have Montgomery versus Louisiana decided in 2016, just recently, saying that Miller versus Alabama applies retroactively. So let me explain. Remember, in the Miller case, the Supreme Court banned mandatory life sentences without parole for juveniles going forward. In the Montgomery case this year, the court said that ban also applied to people who had been sentenced to life without parole as juveniles in the past. One of those people was Henry Montgomery. In 1963, at 17, he was convicted of murder and sentenced to mandatory life without parole. He's now 69. Officials say he's become a model inmate. He coaches the prison boxing team, is part of an art program, and mentors younger inmates. As a result of the Supreme Court ruling, he'll now be considered for parole. Professor Avram says that the new ruling could impact thousands of people in Henry Montgomery's position. Which is to say there are now people in their 50s and 60s, like Henry Montgomery from Montgomery versus Louisiana, who were originally sentenced to life without parole when they were 16, 15. Uh, and the Supreme Court says you have to remedy that. That was an unconstitutional sentence and you have to award these people special parole hearings that will take into account the age that they were when they committed the offense. Different states responded to the Supreme Court ruling in different ways. Texas lawmakers decided that anyone automatically sentenced as a juvenile to life without parole would still have to serve 40 years. But after 40 years, they'd be eligible for parole. That means Ashley and 26 other Texans in the same situation will eventually get a chance for parole. But just being considered for parole doesn't guarantee freedom. In Texas, only about a third of the people sentenced for crimes in the same legal category as Ashley are eventually granted parole. Plus, Ashley will be in her 50s before she's considered for parole. 
Whether she gets out depends on a number of factors, the severity of her crime, her record in prison, and to what extent she expresses remorse. The board may also consider Ashley's age at the time of the murder. In the past few years, lawyers and judges have begun to pay closer attention to the science of the teenage brain. Research shows that teenage brains work differently than adult brains. You know, even into young adulthood, your brain is not done until your mid to late 20s. Frances Jensen is a neuroscientist at the University of Pennsylvania. She says teenage brains get more of a rush from risky behaviors. And teenagers are still developing their prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain responsible for decision making. So if you can imagine this um, brain that is, you know, it's, it's emotional area for risk taking, impulse control, novelty seeking, emotional behavior, sexual desire, all of that actually on at a higher rate in general than the adult brain. And it doesn't have the frontal lobe to say, wait a minute, that's a bad idea. Let me rationalize this with you. You know, let's think about cause and effect. There's a silver lining to the teenage brain's immaturity. Jensen says that young brains are more flexible than adult brains, which means under the right circumstances, people who commit crimes as teenagers can be effectively rehabilitated. But law professor Hadar Avram says usually prison isn't the right circumstances. We know that juveniles who end up doing long sentences in adult prisons end up disproportionately committing suicide. They're disproportionately physically and sexually victimized. They suffer. Uh, many, many hardships when they're doing time in, this, in these institutions. And, uh, and that is something that is, that is really disconcerting, especially given the fact that as prisons are now, they are really not a place that rehabilitates you. They're, they're a place that habituates you to a very problematic life from a very young age. Ashley says after eight years in prison, she doesn't feel like she's grown up at all. I still feel like I'm 17. Like... Um, I, I consult with my mom about basically everything before I do it, and it's, that's, I feel like I shouldn't be like that because I am 27 now, but I feel like I'm stuck at that age because of all this happened to me, and I never got to experience a lot of stuff, and that's really all I know. So it's kind of hard for me to sometimes say, okay, you're 27-year-old, you're not 17 anymore, but I'm just kind of stuck there. With no guarantee that Ashley will ever get parole, she and her family are working on another strategy to get her out of prison, a second appeal. You know, with her, I already have done 10, and just thinking 40 more years, that's, wow, that's a long time, you know? So I would hope and pray that, you know, we can get something going way before then. Her family has hired a new lawyer. His name is David Rushing. Ashley's Aunt Autumn says Ashley's mom sends him all the money she can. It's, it's hard for her to try to send money, keep money on the books, and pay for the lawyer, and you know, keep the payments going. But with the help of her and me and the family, we're putting it together, trying to do it. Ashley's aunt says the goal is to convince a higher court that the statements Ashley gave to police should not have been used to prosecute her. The thing is, Ashley's first lawyer already filed a similar appeal. The appeal was refused. I wanted to find out how this second appeal might be different from the first, 
so I reached out to her new lawyer to ask him. He has four different phone numbers listed on the internet. I managed to talk to him on the phone, once. He even left me a voicemail. Yes, ma'am, this is attorney David Rushing calling you back, 713-408-3606, 713-408-3606, But when I tried to schedule an interview with him, he stopped responding. So I went to Houston to look for him. He has two offices listed online, one downtown and one in an upscale business area. I went to both. He doesn't work at either office anymore. Hello, I'm trying to find 300E. This is, who are you looking for? Uh, for David Rushing. Um, he's actually no longer here. Um, I'm looking for a lawyer named David Rushing, and on his website it says he has an office here at number 816. Huh. We don't have an 816, hey, August 31st, 2015. That's when his lease expired. It's a mysterious sky. So I went to his house, one of his houses, and left him a note. He still hasn't gotten back to me. Meanwhile, Ashley is out of the loop. She goes to the prison law library to try to find out what's happening. Sometimes I go and um, I try to look up as much as I can things that apply to me or that I think applies to me. And I may not necessarily understand all of it, all the legal terms and everything, but I still try to like go over it as much as I can and try to, you know, figure out some things or if I have questions, I try to get in contact with my family or have some legal um, assistance from somebody, and I just try to go from there. A few days after I met with Ashley in prison, I got a letter from her in the mail. She included a poem. She wrote it a few years into her sentence, but says she still feels the same way. It's called Lost. Her Aunt Autumn reads the poem. Two different worlds I don't quite fit in, Pain and hurt is how my story begins. See, I thought I was in love and I fell deep. I fell hard. I thought that love would fill my void. Instead, it left me with bitterness towards that person. Lost and confused, this I know for certain. Why must I suffer? Why must I feel pain? Lost in a world where it seems like everything is a game. Who can I talk to? Who can I trust? I hold all my feelings in until it feels like I'll bust. It's like I'm trapped in a maze with no way out. I pray to God, but does he really heal me out? I'm just so lost. For Life of the Law, I'm Brenda Salinas. Kids Doing Life was reported by Brenda Salinas and edited by Jess Angbertson with sound design and production by Shawnee Avaram. Ibi Caputo and Kirsten Jesuits Heidel worked with us on post-production. Hadar Avaram was our advising scholar. We want to thank Rachel Kane, our summer intern, and Megan Flynn, Beth Schwarzefel, and Terry Langford for their reporting and help with production. Howard Gelman is our engineer. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, Tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. We tell stories about the law like it is. Stories about block bosses who give out hugs and slugs. 
Attorneys with 1-800 numbers and ads on TV at 3 a.m. And lawyers who negotiate mineral rights on asteroids. Take a few minutes to post your review of Life of the Law on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Every time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters, reviews of plays, books, movies, and previews of upcoming episodes. You can subscribe at lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate, connecting sophisticated listeners with top publishers and thinkers. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Proteus Fund, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct cost of producing our episodes. It just takes a minute. Next on Life of the Law. People say these are accidents, as if they're weird things that no one ever thought about. That's not what's going on out there. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.